So we are beginning this new series today, and we are studying between now and Pentecost just about the most familiar passage in the whole of Scripture. It is also the most radical thing we could ever say if we really mean it. The Lord's Prayer. Let's turn to Matthew 6, verse 5. The uh, bulletin contains page numbers to help us as well. Matthew 6, verse 5. Jesus speaking, he says, when you pray, so the assumption is that we will. And uh, at the time Jesus is speaking, prayer was said in, in public, in the synagogue. There was an institutionalized practice of prayer. And this uh, synagogue prayer or institutionalized prayer has made some people question, therefore, why Jesus says that some other people happen to be praying in the street and Look at that in verse 5. He says, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, that much we understand, and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. What some scholars believe is going on here is that if someone was not asked to come up and lead the prayers in the synagogue, but they still wanted all the glory of being seen in public, they would run deliberately late to church, and then in a great show of piety, they would stop and hold an impromptu prayer service in the middle of the street for everybody to see, where they were, of course, in charge of their own service. They were orchestrating opportunities to show off through prayer. Now, you might be saying, well, I don't do that. I don't hold my own prayer service in the street, and I don't come up to the front and give long-winded speeches for everyone to hear. But it's very easy, I think, for any of us to misuse prayer. Can I pray for you? That could mean, can I pray for you? Or it could mean, tell me all your gossip. Can I pray for you? It could mean, can I pray for you? It could mean, can I tell you how much holier my life is than yours? Ooh, that's what's happening in your life, is it? Well, <laughs> my family's all right. Dear God, thank you that I'm so great and they're a mess. It could mean here is my MDiv paper with an amen at the end of it. Let me show you all the theology that I know. And Jesus says if for any reason prayer has become for you an orchestrated opportunity to show off through prayer, then why don't you do it somewhere else. Verse 6. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. The word room here, perhaps um, I've always just imagined a bedroom or something. It's actually a private room. The word tamion here, I discovered, was a small windowless ground floor storage room. And so if showing off has become a, a problem for you, what I recommend is you, you take a moment to feast your eyes on this room, on all the liturgical apparatus and the ornaments and the gold and the embroidery. And then when you've had a good last look around in here, before you leave today, go through to the church kitchen and open up the church mop cupboard and have a look in there at the buckets and the bleach and sniff the fumes just to drive home Jesus' point. Maybe we can get some carry-out and serve home communion for you in the mop closet if prayer has become an orchestrated opportunity to show off for you. He says in verse 5, 
you must not be like the hypocrites. This is the first of two you must not be like statements in the passage. The hypocrites, we've looked at this many times before, were the play actors of the day who would stand up on a stage behind a mask for all to see, pretending to have feelings that the actor behind the mask didn't really have. They were showing off. That was their job. Nothing wrong with it when it's your job, but they were lacking authenticity in what they were doing. And Jesus says, that stage performance is not a model for prayer in church. The New Testament frequently uses this word hypocrite, the play actors of the day, as a warning to Christians not to to show off that that our our life, our faith, should not be one of play acting. Let Let us say pray acting. Let us not use prayer as an opportunity to turn this into a stage. Better in prayer, Jesus says, just to get real, just to be the real you, just to be authentic, just to be ordinary and and simple and and honest. In his book on on prayer, uh, which is called Prayer, by Richard Foster, kind of easy to find, he says this, he says, simple prayer involves ordinary people bringing ordinary concerns to a loving and compassionate father. There is no pretense in simple prayer. We do not pretend to be more holy, more pure, or more saintly than we really are. How pompous must this group of God's people have become for Christ to prescribe a turn in the mop cupboard to them? I mean, it must have have got pretty bad. And how comforting should this be to, to any of us that feel like we don't really pray well enough? You know, I don't pray long enough. I don't pray enough. I don't pray often enough. I don't pray the right words. I don't know what to say. I, I'm not as good as, as someone else. How comforting must it be for anyone who feels like that to have Jesus say to you, just come as you are. Be honest. The warning is in verse 5, those of you that use prayer to show off have your reward already. What is it? That a few people around you think better of you for a few minutes and then... <laughs> It's gone. That is the value of your pompous prayer. Now, in verse 8, we find the second of these do not be like statements. So now Jesus uh, says another thing. And it's not the location now that he's talking about, but more the length that Jesus corrects. Verses 7 and 8. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Prayer in the non-Jewish world uh, had often become more like a a magic spell or an incantation than a real prayer. There were very long, rambling, elaborate set phrases that were piled up on top of each other and repeated over and over again by rote, uh, almost to get God's attention, I think. They, They believed that the more formal they were and the the more uh, impressive they sounded, the more likely it would be that a God out there would respond somehow. I think the greatest example of this kind of a problem comes uh, in the book of First Kings. It's our first reading. Please don't lose Matthew. Please anticipate the ribbons that the daughters of the king are making for our Bibles this, this month. Put um, the announcement in Matthew and flick to First Kings 18. The numbers, uh, page numbers are in the bulletin to help you. 
on a smartphone, you just type in the words First Kings. Just saying. First Kings 18, 19. Elijah, in 1 Kings 18, 19, finds himself in a prayer contest. And uh, he's in a, a contest with the prophets of Baal or Baal or Baal or however you want to say it. Doesn't matter because he's not real anyway. And uh, there's 450 of these prophets of a non-existent God that begins with a B. And uh, there are 400 prophets of uh, Asherah, his consort, Mizbal. Don't think they were technically married, but they reputedly hung out quite a bit. And in verse 20, the king assembles all of them, the 950 versus the one, to find out who is the real God, and they devise a very simple test in verse 23. Two altars are built, two sacrificial bulls are brought in, two log piles are assembled, there are two sets of prayers, and there are two gods, and they say, let the real one, let the real God answer by fire. Let whoever is the real God hear these prayers and start the sacrifice from above by fire himself. Ringing any bells, it's so Christological, but that's another sermon annoyingly. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull. He gives them every advantage. Let them choose the bull they want. Which one are you going to choose? The driest looking one I recommend. (laughs) By the way, Baal is the fire god, or at least the sun god. So this entire test is well within his wheelhouse. This is his scene. And in verse 26, they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. You know, it's one of those repetitive, Oh, Baal, answer us prayers. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar they had made. This word limping is super important. There's an elaborate liturgical procession round the altar here, It physically, this parading in and out and round and round, physically mirrors the sheer tediousness of their prayer. Imagine 950 of them hobbling around like zombies, you know, round and around the altar. Just tedious. I wouldn't want to be Baal if that's what worship is like. And for several other reasons too. At uh, noon, verse 27 tells us, Elijah mocked them. It's a good time for mockery, I think. Noon. The traditional noonday mock. You don't want to start your mocking too soon. And he says, he says, cry aloud. You know, maybe, maybe your service isn't loud enough. Either he is musing, you know, stroking his beard, or, or relieving himself. He's on the toilet, perhaps, or he's on a journey. This is how rude. If Baal is a god, this is rude talk. Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened, of course. No real God would fail to answer because he was on vacation or daydreaming or, you know, I'd had a bad curry the night before and a bit of deli belly in the morning. It's incredibly rude. It's mocking. It's, it's vulgar. It's coarse. It's, it's kind, of, kind of aggressive, actually. And the prophets of Baal, verse 28, screening out the mockery, step up the prayer, and they cried aloud. There is a wailing noise now, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and with lances until the blood gushed out. These are no 
sort of small ceremonial paper cuts here. The blood is gushing and, and, and running out. There was always blood in sacrifice. Does it sound familiar? That's another sermon. These are near fatal blows. This is the very limit of, of human effort that is going on here. I just want to say to you, church, if at this point you actually don't like Anglican liturgy, you know, don't complain about it again, will you? <laughs> you could be a prophet of Baal, much more serious. They seek to manipulate Baal with this extensive and extreme liturgical practice. There's, there's self-mutilation, there's self-sacrifice, self-abuse. They're bleeding out on their altar as they parade around elaborate practices, and they go on and on and on all day long. And as midday passed, verse 29 says, they raved on. There's just a sense that this church service has got way out of control at this particular point. That's Kramer from Seinfeld, if any of you got the quote. Verse 29. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Quite emphatic. No, no, no. Every ounce of human effort is piled into this prayer. But no, 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 nothing happens. And now it's Elijah's turn. By contrast, verse 33 tells us he has the offering and the word soaked in water three times just as he gave them every advantage. He takes every disadvantage. And in verse 36 he said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. It's strikingly similar when you break it down to the same prayer that Christ taught us to pray. Because it's a prayer, if you look at it, where God is known. God is named in this prayer. God is described generationally like a father who regards his children. This is a God who turns human hearts around. This is a God who answers the simplest of prayers. And he doesn't answer the simple prayer because it is any good or because Elijah is any good, but for the sake of his glory and for the sake of our salvation alone. Verse 38 tells us the fire of the Lord fell from above. It consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and the water, all of it. You know, when you start a fire, what you have left is dust. God burns the dust. This is comprehensive. This is an overfulfillment. And this overfulfillment by fire is entirely disproportionate to the human effort that went into this prayer, but it is entirely proportionate to the sovereign grace of the only God who answers. So look back at verse 20 now of First Kings. Do you get it? Do you get the contemporary challenge? How long will you go limping between two different opinions? It's a play on words. Just as the, the prophets beat themselves and limped around the altar, parading in and out, round and round in ever more elaborate holy places and holy practices, thinking somehow the more they did, the more they added, the more holy it would become, these people spiritually were limping 
between two gods. Have a bit of Yahweh, we'll have a little bit of Baal. We'll hedge our bets. We'll take a bit of the true God, we'll take a bit of the false God just in case to be on the safe side. For them, it was Baal versus Yahweh. For us, it could be Jesus versus anything. Could be your bank balance, could be your health, could be your appearance, could be your car, could be your job, could be your certificates and degrees on the wall or your children or or anything at all you care to name. If you are limping between two gods, Jesus and, and your plaque says to the glory of God and dot, 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 complete the sentence, it won't ever go well. If that's what you want on your epitaph, then you are limping between two gods and no amount of activity, no matter how elaborate or holy or impressive it may be, will ever atone for your sin. Simple faith. Simple prayers. That is the order of the day. Back to Matthew 6. Jesus in Matthew 6, he says the same thing. And as we've seen many times when the New Testament applies or amplifies some aspect of of the Old Testament, we know we're onto something. Jesus has said, point number one, don't show off. Point number two, don't go on too long. Doesn't apply to sermons, just prayer. He says, pray like this then. Ah, thank you. <laughs> in your warden chuckled at me. Um, <laughs> means my job's on the line. Uh, pray then like this. Jesus, Jesus speaking. Don't interrupt me. <laughs> Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's such a simple prayer, isn't it? It's such a simple prayer. Please don't think, though, that the sheer simplicity of this prayer means anything like the fact that we have a simple God. God's name, this prayer tells us, is to be hallowed. His name is holy. But even though God's name is uniquely holy, and even though he is the God of consuming fire, he is the God of the heavens, it's plural in the original language. God is of the place of the clouds and the tempest and the thunder and the lightning. God is metaphorically and symbolically the seat of all eternal things, and literally so as well. He is the God of all time, the God of all space, the God certainly of all power, whose name must be treated with the highest honor and the highest care that we may afford, lest we die as we approach him. He is yet also at the same time and in the same breath, our Father. It's the fourth time in these few verses that he's described God that way, Father. Pater in Greek, Abba in Aramaic, a very intimate term of familial respect. We don't pray to get God's attention. We pray because we have it already. Ephesians 2 says, through Christ we have access to the Father. And Romans 5 says, through Christ we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It is Christ's blood was the only blood that was needed on the cross to atone for you and to present you as worthy before the Lord. His blood was the only blood that was needed for us to be heard. Now God is listening. If God would give his own life, so that he could hear your prayer by grace alone? Do you think some practices of an elaborate liturgical nature will somehow drive the prayer home more effectively? And isn't it supremely ironic, church, that of all of the parts of Scripture, that we could ourselves have turned into a lifeless, 
liturgical limp of its own, it would be this bit. This Lord's Prayer, said each week by Christians all over the world, off by heart, with barely a thought as to what any of it means, or to whom we speak when we say it. It is a radical prayer. If we prayed this prayer like we meant it, we would turn Fox Chapel upside down, and then we get on to the neighboring provinces as well. So in my early 20s, before I met Kat, a few friends, we would go off to Europe each summer to visit very old battlefields from the Napoleonic Wars and uh, Franco-Prussian War, and we would visit historical uh, graves and things like that. Uh, no wonder that we were single, I think, at the time. <laughs> at night, we would, we would eat, uh, often without any women there for some reason. One of the guys, Andy was a vegetarian, and in rural Spain, this concept is almost unheard of. And at once, an entire kitchen came out just to look at this hairy spectacle from a strange land. What manner of creature could this be that doesn't eat meat? Uh, none of us had any Spanish. We hadn't learned any of it. Uh, it was long before smartphones came out, so we used a little dictionary to work out what we would say to help him order the food. And Andy in a very thick Manchester accent, would say each night, soy vegetariano, no carnies. And he would do a sort of gesticulation wildly to drive home the seriousness of his abstention on this matter. Uh, what I gather is that this loosely translates, I'm vegetarian, no meat. And uh, it worked because each night what they brought to him was a, a single plate of tomatoes. That was... <laughs> all they could imagine he could possibly eat. The rest of us all ordered big steaks and, you know, Hamon Serrano and things to prove that although we were small hairy men from a strange land, we were real men nonetheless. And it was a bit embarrassing, all of this soy vegetariano stuff, but it worked. In a bizarre way, not only did it work, I think they would touch these guys that we would travel to their towns to see really obscure stuff and try our best to speak to them in their own words. You know, dodgy and embarrassing, but it worked and it was touching. Now, what I want you to do is think back to school, if and when you learned languages at school, and think back to the, to the exam rooms and the tests that we did, and uh, they were supposed to prepare you for moments like this, weren't they, those tests at school? Uh, and many of us, perhaps you were like me, were so obsessed with doing well in the exam and getting good marks that what many of us learned for the test was completely useless. We uh, found that guaranteed to come up every year in the written paper was the requirement that you write a letter to your pen pal. So what we did as we revised for the test is we got the phrase books out and we all learned absolutely perfect, grammatically elegant, opening and closing sentences off by heart with all the little accents in the right place and everything. Question number three came up every year. Write a letter to your French pen pal, Pierre. And then there was a minor variant. You tell them you've got a new dog or you've moved house or something. Every single student in that exam room, a hundred of us sitting in rows, would write the exact same opening sentence. Je suis vraiment désolé de ne pas t'avoir écrit plus tôt. Excusez-moi. Jay un Chen. Je vous prie d'agréer, monsieur, l'expression de mes sentiments distingués. Useless. Completely useless. You know, 
when I choose to talk to someone close to me that I love, I don't trot out some mechanically perfect opening and closing sentence from a phrase book that I don't really understand and certainly don't even mean. If I called my father and I spoke to him like that, he'd think I'd gone absolutely mad. My kids, when they come to me, they talk to me, particularly when they were little. They would say things. They would get their words wrong. That didn't put me off. I didn't send them away and say, I'm sorry, you, you, you got your declension slightly wrong. I don't want to listen to you anymore. You know, I, it was endearing. I, I want to hear what my kids say. The older uh, we all get, I, I just want to talk to my dad more. I'm talking to him on the phone more than I have done ever, I think. As the kids get older, they're more entertaining to me, more interesting. They amuse me. They make me laugh. When we have meals around the table, there's conversation and it flows, not with hackneyed phrases trotted out, but just with whatever words we have. Saints, wouldn't it be a shame if we turned our prayer book into a phrase book, just a sort of book of incantations to impress the chief examiner or perhaps the people around us. And I'm not having a go at liturgies. Jesus prayed liturgy. Jesus, in one of the Greek words for his title, is the liturgy. He is the thing that enables us to to pray and worship. Jesus prayed liturgy. He prayed prayers and set prayers and public prayers and long prayers and biblical prayers and repetitive prayers. There's nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. Uh, But Jesus' point here is that if God Almighty is already our loving Heavenly Father, then we've had his attention from the start. And what he wants is for his children to call on him as they are, with whatever words they have, whatever condition they are in. Just get on with it. Come and speak normal words, simply, honestly. And above all, as often as they possibly can. As he taught us, so we pray. Let's pray together. Dear God, Heavenly Father, thank you that we can know you. And even though sometimes we're having a good week and sometimes we're having a bad week, we don't always know what to say. We can just come before you and start talking to you from the heart. Thank you that we dare approach the throne of grace boldly and with confidence because of your work on the cross. That we can just talk to you because of your enabling us to do so. Amen.